0: You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Hey, good morning, North Valley. Great to be with you this morning, and we are excited about today. Today's uh, continuing on in our Intentional Living message series. Today I'm talking about the gospel marriage. So, been married 18 years, and man, have I needed to rely on the gospel of Jesus Christ to make marriage the most of it, make, making the most of it. Today, before I get started, I want to share with you a, a funny story I heard recently. The Bible says that laughter is like medicine for the soul, and it's encouraging for us. I heard this story of an elderly couple that had been married for over 60 years. They were at a church gathering, and someone asked them the secret of their success. The man told how he had always treated his wife with love, and he took her on trips all over the world. He said, in fact, on our 25th wedding anniversary, I took her to Sydney, Australia. Everyone clapped, and then someone spoke up and said, well, what'd you do for your 50th anniversary? And he said, I went back, and I picked her up. <laughs> oh man, it is good being with you today. I hope uh, you are encouraged together to get into God's Word. Lesson on that joke is you don't want to be that guy. And uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's Word as it comes to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. And we're looking at. Uh, closing up this little three-week series within a series on marriage and relationships. Uh, In Ephesians 5.25-35, notice the love of Jesus Christ as the example for the husbands. He says this, the Apostle Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me pause just for a moment right there. Immediately, the paradigm, the picture, the example for the husband is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has been sinned against more than anybody in the world. And he has every reason in the world to be bitter and not to get better, but he's forgiving. And the Bible says is that just as Christ loved the church, so husbands are to love their wives. We're gonna be challenged today for this gospel marriage relationship, to live it out as a husband and as a wife. In verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." The reality is, is the love of Jesus Christ has a powerful effect to bring about change and sanctification is that word that was used in verse 26. And we're going to learn that when we use love in a relationship, it has the power to change people. Verse 28 says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife uh, loves himself, for no one ever hated his own fa- flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a callback that the Apostle Paul uses. From, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Genesis chapter two, verse 25, it's an important memory to realize that there is a foundational statement being made here in regards to marriage and relationships. It's a pursuit of oneness. In Genesis chapter two, verse 25, look at the text again where it says, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, And hold fast to his wife. Who is the man in the passage that the Apostle Paul is referring to and the author of Genesis is referring to? It is Adam. But then it says, therefore, leave his father and mother. The question is, who is the father and the mother? And then hold fast to his wife. The wife is obviously Eve, but Adam and Eve did not have biological parents. So what does this passage mean for us? It means that it was a passage written with the future generations in mind as a pattern in a picture of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that doesn't mathematically make sense, but it's a calling that is a mysterious calling that two become one, and we're going to learn about that today. Verse thirty-two, the Apostle Paul acknowledges that. Verse thirty-two, he says the mystery is profound, and I'm referring, and I'm, I'm it, it, and I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here we go. What are we going to be learning about today? We're going to be learning about the difference between a gospel verse. Marriage versus a good works marriage. What is a gospel marriage? A gospel marriage is love and respect are given unconditionally. By gospel marriage, I mean love and respect flow unconditionally. Uh, Just as Jesus chooses to love us, yet while we were still sinners, a godly, loving husband chooses to love his wife no matter her behavior. A gospel-centered marriage is where a wife chooses to respect her husband even when he doesn't show love as much as he should or ought to. A gospel marriage is a 100% commitment from the husband and a 100% commitment to the wife. It's a covenant commitment. It's a commitment that they do unto the Lord. They look at their obedience and behavior towards each other as a calling unto God more than a calling to that spouse. All of Scripture tells us that what we do is going to be unto the Lord. The calling of headship is a divine calling. It's unto the Lord Uh, husbands are to serve as the heads of their household, responsibility, a big burden to love sacrificially. The wife is in this divine calling called to submission, which is a biblical word, which is a divine calling to support and respect her husband. A gospel marriage is where love and respect flow freely and unconditionally. A good works marriage is where love and respect are earned and therefore conditional. It's a 50-50 agreement. It's a contractual agreement, and at worst, it's a prenuptial agreement. Uh, The idea of a good works marriage is where you are, are, are having to earn one another's love and respect. There is nothing biblical about that idea of having to earn someone's respect or earn someone's love in a marriage. A marriage is a special relationship that's to reflect the love of Jesus Christ, his love that he has for the church. And no one's been sinned against more than Jesus Christ has. And what does he choose to do? Love unconditionally. Why? Because they're in a covenant relationship with one another. And so here's the decision that we have to make. If you choose a gospel marriage, you have a marriage that is face to face. When I'm with my bride, I choose an intimate relationship, a face to face relationship, a friendship relationship. If I choose a good works relationship, these are often the relationships or the marriages that are shoulder to shoulder. They work really hard, they praise one another when work is accomplished, they're shoulder to shoulder. Uh, They're working really hard, but the praise and the love and the respect flow conditionally, only if they're shoulder to shoulder working. Or what happens is, is over time in a good works marriage is you end up being back to back. And there is no intimacy. There is no free-flowing love and respect. And so today what we're going to do is look at three different commitments of a gospel marriage. Number one, uh, the first commitment for a gospel marriage is to commit to give unconditional love and respect. Um, you might have heard the song before "Respect" by Aretha Franklin, and it's interesting because she's the one who's saying that she needs respect. But I would argue, actually, man is designed with this inherent need for respect. He he is designed biblically. It's biblically communicated that the husband needs respect, and that the wife is to give respect. And on the contrary, on the flip side women are designed with an inherent ability to love and they need to be loved. And Aretha Franklin write this, writes this song and I, it was a great song and it was, uh, became very popular during the feminist movement. But what's really interesting is who wrote the song was Otis Redding, a man. In 1965, he wrote the song, but it didn't become a hit until 1967 it magnifies the reality Otis was writing the song to ask for respect from his wife. Aretha took it. And she, get, and she used it as a mantra within the feminist movement. Now, again, I want to remind you, in God's eyes, all men and all women are created equal in value, yet different in role. In the marriage relationship, the man's not more favorite than the wife is or the husband more than the wife. They're both equally loved, valued, and cherished, but called to different roles and responsibilities. And I would argue, if you're going to choose a gospel marriage, you need an unconditional love and respect Love and respect unconditionally are found in this Ephesians 5:33, where it says, "However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." I can remember a time in my relationship with Leslie where she showed me tremendous amounts of respect. Uh, I mean, it fueled my life and my ministry. And I had to show her tremendous amounts of love for us to advance in our relationship. But looking back on my life, I can recall being at Dallas Seminary, um, and even before Dallas, when we were in Little Rock, Arkansas, praying about the next steps in our, in our ministry uh, journey, um, I told her, I said, sweetie, I think we need to pack up and move to Dallas, Texas. She came out of a military family, and she told me when we met, I would prefer not to travel all around the country. I'd love to just stay in one place, raise a family and all that. That was tough for me. So I, and I told her, and it was a tough conversation. I said, sweetie, we need to move to Dallas. I need to get some theological training, and from there, let's pray about going into ministry and missions. She said, okay. She did it. I was so thankful. She respected me in that decision for our marriage. Then we get down to Dallas, and then I get on this This mindset, believing that God was calling me perhaps to campaign evangelism, where I was going to travel around the world. I was working with the Luis Palau team for a season, and I had an opportunity where I could start to travel worldwide and be able to share the gospel. And I thought, nothing could be greater. But my wife said to me, you know what, Ryan, that would break my heart. I don't want to travel the world. I want to be in one city. And so I said, okay, sweetie, I gave up that dream, sacrificially gave that up, told the Palau team, I can't do that. I'm going to pursue another route. Then we looked at international missions and we jumped into this vision trip uh, to go to Madrid, Spain to plant a church. And everything started coming together. And I was so excited. We raised money and support and went over there and spent a lot of time there. And I started to realize something was happening with my wife, she began to withdraw just a little bit and then ask lots of questions. It was a sign to show me that something was not right in, in that, that step. I remember uh, on one trip in particular, I went down to uh, Mexico to visit one of the team members on the, on the church planning team that was going to go to Madrid, Spain, and I came back from that trip, trip with a very clear sense that God was saying, this isn't going to work for you. It's not a good fit. You need to pull out. I came home. I remember that day. I walked in the door, and I told her, I said, sweetie, I don't know. I'm really sensing this isn't the right move. What do you think? And she broke down in tears and she said, I've been praying for you. I've been praying that you would see it and God would reveal it, that it's not the right move. And I literally just held her, and in that moment, it formalized and crystallized, what a respectful, loving wife to walk with me in that journey, give me room to run and explore and not nag me or push me or pry me, but faithfully pursue the Lord in prayer, have conversations with me. And together that day, we said, our hands are open. And from that day forward, miracles started to line up and we found ourselves in Phoenix, Arizona in a short time thereafter and planted North Valley Community Church. And we're coming up on eight years. And it's been the most glorious years ever. And I want to say that kind of respect is unconditional. Did I deserve it? No, I didn't. There were so many things I didn't do that I should have done, but she showed me unconditional respect. You want a gospel marriage, the best marriage? The good news marriage, that's what the gospel means. You've got to show unconditional love and unconditional respect. For me, I had to give up the idea of traveling the world uh, and, and sharing the gospel. I gave that up. I said, you know what? She doesn't want to do that. I get it. We can serve the Lord somewhere else. Love and respect is a need. And the Bible verse that you've got there in, your, in the Scriptures that you can see, it shows us three things. The first is, is that it reveals that there's a weakness, for the apostle Paul to call the husband to love his wife is revealing that he needs to be commanded to do so. He didn't command the wife to love the husband. It's interesting in Ephesians chapter 6, he commands the children to obey. What does that mean? When we're commanded specifically, and it says in the scriptures, um, uh, and, 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 let each one of you love his wife. He's commanding the husband and the wife see that she respects her husband. First observation is it reveals weakness, that I'm naturally not great at being loving. Uh, and, and, and it shows on the flip side, a weakness for the wife. She's, she's apt and geared towards loving, being nurturing, but not necessarily always respectful. I mean, it's interesting if I look at relationships and how even Leslie and I interact, when Leslie walks into a conversation with other girls, she says, oh, how are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, how are the kids? How are the relationships? Even if it's a stranger. For me, when I walk into a relationship, meet somebody for the first time, I ask them a couple of things, and then I say, what do you do? And it's, an, it's the work question comes up. Uh, what do you do for work? And it's a respect-oriented conversation men are hardwired to need respect. Their gasoline is respect. That's what fuels them and makes them grow and go. For a wife, it's love. And that's why the apostle Paul says, husbands, you must love your wives. Uh, Wives, you should respect your husband. Why? Because there's a custom-designed weakness. Additionally, it shows that there's a need there's a great need. Leslie's love tank is filled up. There's this invisible thing called the love tank. It's filled up with with when when I do loving things, kind things, uh, considerate things. As I show her love, it fills up her emotional, spiritual, uh, relational well-being. And then when she shows me respect, it meets a God-given need within my life. Additionally, this verse also does something else that's incredibly powerful. It reveals the power to change because in, in Ephesians 5:26, 26, uh, the Apostle Paul had just said, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he says that he, might ha- that he might sanctify her. Sanctify means to change. That means to bring about good in a pattern of holiness. Marriage is not designed simply for happiness, but for holiness, then the husband, as he loves, it brings about a spiritual sanctification movement. And you say to me, tell me more. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2 says to the wife, respect your unbelieving husband, even if he doesn't believe, so that he might be one without even a word, but by your behavior. My point is when you choose love and when you choose respect, you are doing a powerful act that is very much godlike and it brings about a powerful change. You want a gospel marriage committed to this unconditional love and respect to flow in and through your marriage. Number 2, you need to commit to resolving conflicts. There is no peace in your home if you don't figure out how to resolve conflicts. Uh, the reality is, is that some of you are stuffers and some of you are spewers. When you get angry, when you get frustrated, you, get, you either stuff it, you bring it in, and you pile it in, and then you're like a ticking time bomb, and sometime you're going to explode, but not for a long time. You withdraw, you isolate, you, you back away, you, you, you get, become passive in that moment. It's fight or flight. You're the flight when you stuff it. The spewer is the fighter. When a conflict hits confrontation. It's immediate. It's an immediate uh, 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 confrontation. And, and there's a balance in that. Not one is right and one is wrong. There's a reality of that's just how we're made. But the Bible talks about uh, resolving conflict. And I want to share with you about that. It says in Ephesians of 4, through 27, it says, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. The reality is, is that you can be angry. There's a difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Righteous anger is when you're upset when you've been sinned against. You have every right to be angry. It's okay to be angry. Angry is a God-given emotion that God has given you and you are normal when you are angry about injustice. How do you deal with the anger? An unrighteous anger is flying off the handle, yelling at your spouse, yelling at your kids, and it's, it's anger out of control. And so the Bible says you can be angry, but do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And what would happen in verse 27, and give no opportunity for the devil. The moment that you let that anger sit and reside in. The longer you go with unresolved conflict is the more room you allow the devil to get a foothold into that door of your heart and be able to pry himself in and set up shop and you become bitter, you don't become better. So resolving the conflict is incredibly important. There's a number of things, you know, that in marriage that you got to work at and it's all a little bit awkward. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting. For, I mean, life is just filled with learning. You know, for the toddler learning to walk, the toddler will fall down, get bruised. For the five-year-olds, you know, you gotta take the training wheels off. And the kid's going to fall down and get some bruises. For the adolescent, he's going to pick up the skateboard and he's going to try to do tricks on a half piper. Or in the street, and he's going to twist his ankle. We're all going to get hurt as we try to pursue pursue this gospel marriage. It's going to be hard when you're trying to resolve conflict. But what I've learned is, is this, is that we tend to be better at trying to fix things better than fixing relationships. Like for example, if your, roof licks, uh, if your roof leaks, then you get it repaired. If your car has a problem, you get the carburetor fixed or whatever be the case. If your washing machine goes out, you call the repairman. But what about your marriage? We tend to back away and go, I don't know how to handle this. You go to God's word, you get some godly wisdom, you get godly counsel in your life and it can grow and get better. So I wanna challenge you, let's work on fixing things in the relationship. All of you and all of us need a tune-up. And so what the reality is, is there are some incredible destructive patterns that could be at play in your marital relationship right now. Um, in each message that I do, I try to read a book or two at times to just get my mind fully immersed around it in addition to all the Bible reading and prayer that I do. Um, one of the one of the uh, research uh, folks that I've been really encouraged by is Dr. John Gottman. And uh, he takes a very uh, scientific, research-based approach to uh, marriage and relationships. And he talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He uses some biblical language to describe just how destructive a marriage relationship can be if these four horsemen are riding around your marriage, slashing things up, creating conflict, and and creating uh, craziness. And so I'll just share them with you. They predicted through research and evaluating couples in just 15 minutes time and with a 90% accuracy rate to determine if that couple would uh, divorce one another or not. The four horsemen that um, that can destroy and create enormous amounts of conflict are these. Criticism being number one. Criticism is when you're constantly communicating or nagging or saying something that's rude or unhelpful or disrespectful or unloving. Um, The better way, a criticism sounds like this. Um, You never think about how your behavior is affecting other people. I don't believe you you that you're forgetful. You're just selfish. You never think about others. You never think about me. Does that sound familiar that 's deep criticism there 's a flip side you could handle that in that same issue. You could say it like this: I was scared when you were running late and you didn 't call me. I thought we had an agreement that we that we would do that for one another. What happened? You see, both were the same thing. The voice was heard, but there 's a difference between criticism and complaint when we criticize. That's one of the deadly horsemen in the marriage that will destroy your marriage if you're constantly criticizing one another. The second one is contempt. Contempt is disrespect. It's mocking, it's sarcasm, it's ridicule, it's name-calling, it's mimicking, it's using body language, it's eye-rolling, it's scoffing. And the target of contempt is made to feel despised and worthless, Contempt is much more dangerous and harmful than criticism. Um, Here's an example of what what, uh, contempt sounds like. Are you tired? Well, cry me a river. I've been with the kids all day long running around like mad and keep this house going. And when you come home from work, all you do is you flop down on the sofa, you watch TV, watch sports, you play video games. I don't have the time to deal with another kid. Could you be any more pathetic? That is deep level of contempt. Contempt. And the reality is, if the criticism or contempt is running around in your marriage, it's going to destroy your marriage. Is it normal or natural to have some of that going on? Absolutely. Do we have that in our marriage? Yes, sure we do. But if that's happening on an ongoing basis, where those moments, those experiences are happening on a regular occurrence, it is very destructive and damaging. Defensiveness is the third one. Defensiveness is constantly, and this is one I've always been challenged with. I, I've been defensive in, in many different times in our marital relationship. I think she's trying to criticize me or showing contempt, and I'm, I'm just gun-shy in a sense. I guess I've been through some bad relationships or whatever be the reality. Some of us struggle with these more than others. But defensiveness is, is, is a, here's a defensive response. I was just too busy today. As a matter of fact, you know just how busy my schedule was. Why didn't, why didn't you just do it? Why, why, why do you have to have me do it? You know how busy I am. And then the better response would be a question, maybe something like this. Did you call Betty or Ralph today to let them know that we were not coming tonight as you promised this morning? Could you tell me what happened? And the reality is, is that we can all be defensive at times, but there's a right way and a wrong way to handle it. The fourth one, the fourth horseman is stonewalling. And if you're going to resolve conflict, stonewalling is one of those things you've got to get away from. Stonewalling occurs when the listener withdraws from the interaction. How many times has that happened to you before? Maybe you're the one who's just tired of the conflict and you just want peace. And you know what? You don't even just want to handle it. So what are you going to do? You're going to flatter. You're going to appease. You're not going to deal with it. And you end up stonewalling. It occurs when the listener withdraws from the interaction, shuts down, and simply stops responding to their partner rather than confronting the issues with their partner, the people stonewall. So the reality is, is that it is very typical and very normal for for men to do than women to do. Not all the time. But part of the reason is, is that men feel like if they're going to show respect in the confrontation, then they're going to have to slow their emotions down, get some time and then come back. But they end up not coming back. So what is the right response? The right response would be, all right, I'm feeling too angry to keep talking about this. Can we please take a break and come back again in a bit? It'll be easier to work through this after I've calmed down reality is, is that you need to resolve the conflict, whatever you're going through. And you can't let those four horsemen ride through your marriage and destroy everything. So I want to encourage you. And for Leslie and I, I remember years into the relationship, the first few years when we would get into a disagreement, Leslie would stonewall. She would get mad, get angry, go into the room, lock the door. I... I would, I was the spewer. She was the stuffer. Stuffers liked to Stonewall. She would go into the room, lock the door in the very beginning of our marriage. She'd be in there for hours. And I would say, I'd be knocking on that door and I would say, sweetie, can we talk? And she would make me get to a level where I'm begging for her to come out and to just talk and make up. And so the reality is, is the good news is, is You know, years later, about 15 years into our marriage, all these things started to get just better and better. And you're saying to me, if you're a newly married couple, oh, God, have mercy on us. Is it gonna take that long? It just depends. But the reality is nothing comes uh, of that's great value without some hard work. You're gonna have to work at your marriage. Love is a choice. It's a commitment. It's a covenant commitment that you make. And it is and it does get tons better. Today, Leslie, we resolve conflict a lot faster. She doesn't stonewall. We become face-to-face really quick, and we've had to learn these phrases in order to get better and better at this. So what is a formula that perhaps could save your marriage? I'll tell you, the formula is this. This has saved our marriage. Repentance plus forgiveness equals reconciliation. Let me say that again. Repentance plus forgiveness equals reconciliation. In a biblical marriage, a Christian marriage, there needs to be repentance. Repentance, the Bible says in Acts three nineteen, is that when we repent, there's a time of refreshing. Repent means that you turn from sin, that you take out the trash that's in your life, you give it to God, he takes it, and you're clean and you're new. Uh, most of the time in relationships, the husband or the wife fails to do the repentance and just tries to move towards forgiveness. There's a problem there because when we sin against God or when we sin against our spouse, guess who else we're sinning against? We're sinning against the Lord himself. And so we need to go to the Lord. This formula has saved our life and our marriage marriage life is repentance. Going to the Lord and saying, I am sorry, I've sinned against my spouse and I know that's hurt you too, Lord. Please give me the wisdom on how to ask for forgiveness now. James 5.16 says that, that we're to confess our sins to one another and that by doing so, and we can pray for one another and we can find healing. That is such an important part. And then there comes that part where you're to um, ask for forgiveness and going to your spouse and saying, please, would, would you forgive me? And doing so, when you have repentance plus forgiveness, that equals reconciliation. And the reality is this, is that you need to do it and take the initiative to do it. You always ask, who should go first? My wife for so many years would say, well, you're the servant leader. You're the head of the household. You go first. Now we've made a commitment. No, 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 no. We're gonna just, we're both gonna try to take the initiative to do that. So how might you apologize? I wanna encourage you on an apology strategy where there's some skin in the game. 99% 99% of the time, I'll just say 100, 100% of the time, it takes two to tango. Who's at fault in the conflict? We want to say it's his fault or her fault, but the reality is if I'm unloving, guess what? Leslie's probably going to be disrespectful. If, 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 I, if she's disrespectful, guess what? I've been most likely unloving. So here's an apology strategy. Uh, that puts some skin in the game when you go to apologize. The husband can say, hey, listen, what you just said came across as disrespectful. Is there anything that I've done to make you feel unloved? I wanna tell you, when I say that kind of statement to my wife, I can get somewhere. She, She can say, wow, well, you were unloving about A, B, and C. And I see right then and there, wow, okay, and I can't be defensive because that's that horseman that wants to kill my marriage. I say, okay, thank you very much. I'm sorry for that. And then she'll bounce back and say, and by the way, about that thing I said, I'm sorry. I can see how that was disrespectful. So we have to realize in a gospel marriage, it's unconditional love, unconditional respect. And we have to Stop the crazy cycle by taking the initiative to resolve the conflict and use apologies that are helpful that show that there's some skin in the game. Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if a wife tells you that she doesn't sin or doesn't have skin in the game, she's lying. If a husband tells you that he doesn't sin, doesn't have skin in the game, he's lying. Or he's deceived, one of the two. The, the wife can say something like this. That came across as unloving to me. Is there anything... That I've done that's been disrespectful, and in that moment you wait for that moment of truth. And the reality is, is that in when when Leslie says that to me, um, I have to do I- inward inventory to see what what have I done, uh, it, how have I been unloving, and I can pause for a moment, evaluate that, and then ask her, "I'm pl- I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me for that?" Reconciliation comes when there's repentance and there's forgiveness. You can't have reconciliation without it. You can forgive somebody and move on, but you don't have reconciliation with them unless it's a mutual thing where there's been repentance, confession with two parties doing the same thing. I wanna encourage you to do that in a gospel marriage. It's the best marriage. And the last one is to commit to pursue oneness in the marriage. Pursuing oneness is where the husband and the wife are pursuing together Jesus Christ. They start out right here in their marital relationship. Most people think marriage is the the finish line. It's not. It's the starting point of the race. The marriage is a journey. The Christian life is a journey. The finish line is when we see Jesus face to face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, So at the beginning of your marriage, She's over here, he's over here, very two different sinful people that struggle with all sorts of things, have all sorts of different personalities, very, very different, made in God's image, loved by God, cherished by God, called in a covenant relationship together to pursue Jesus Christ. And as they do, they grow closer together. And that's the goal, is that you pursue oneness in the marital relationship. Pursuing oneness is not two-ness, it's mathematically crazy. When the two come together, they become one. And so many times in our marriage relationship, separate, there's two bank accounts. Uh, they, they, they sleep in two different beds. They have uh, two different hobbies, two different lives, two different, uh, maybe even two different gods, and they're not worshiping the same God. They're not go, doing the same things. That's two-ness. God calls us to oneness in a marital relationship. It says this in Ephesians 5.31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Emotionally, we're to come one. How do we do that? Three different things that I've learned over the years that show and do incredible change in my wife in the relationship is one is just study your spouse. You've got to be a student of your spouse and learn the weaknesses, the strengths, and then say to God, thank you for my spouse. And um, it's studying your spouse. Uh, it's, it's, it's learning all the things that are good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, Leslie and I have so many differences. When I've got a lot on my mind, I'll drive down the freeway and I'll go really slow, and then she'll lean over at me and she'll say, what are you doing? You're driving like a grandpa. Speed up. She drives very fast everywhere she goes. So those of you that are police officers might be wanting to watch her. Uh, But for me, I go really, really slow a lot of times because I'm thinking about so much. And I find out the more I'm thinking, sometimes the slower I go. And I get lost in the process. And the reality is, is that we have to study our spouse and learn the differences and learn to appreciate the differences. Secondly, I'd say just praise the little things. Uh, research shows, Dr. John Gottman says this, and along with, uh, there's a great book, Love and Respect, uh, Really Enjoy, another great book, Real Marriage by Mark and Grace Driscoll. All these are great books to add to your library for a Christian couple. But the common thread is praise the little things. If you can have more positive moments and connections in your relationship, it does a world of good. You want to try to do as many positive experiences as possible. Just say, hey, even if she, she, she does the dishes and you take out the trash, even if it's agreed upon responsibility. Hey, thanks for doing the dishes today. I love a clean house. Um, just a positive moment. Hey, you've been with the kids all day long. You do a great job. I really appreciate that. You have to scan the environment constantly to fill up that love tank and find the positive things and the wonderful things and give praise to those things. When you, when you do, you're filling up and building that emotional oneness that we all need. The third one is always turn towards each other for, to emotionally engage to pursue oneness. Remember I said there's three kinds of marriages. There's back-to-back, and you're angry, and you don't have resolved conflict. There's side-to-side shoulder-to-shoulder relationships, and you're both working really, really hard in your own arena, and it's a good works-oriented relationship, or there's face-to-face. The best thing you can do is make a decision today to say, my spouse will be my best friend. I'm going to treat him like a friend. I'm going to be friendly. And when she asks me a question or she says something like, hey, isn't that a pretty um, park over there? You don't just go, "Uh, yeah, sure you say, yeah, it is a great park. Maybe we should go someday. You know, it's engaging. It's turning towards your friend. It's looking to and, and seeing how you can encourage and be that encouragement to her or him. And then uh, additionally, it's, it's pursuing oneness physically. 1 Corinthians 7, five is an is a interesting uh, uh, text to tell us about the importance of pursuing you know, oneness and the challenge that there is, in Corinthians 7, five, it says this, "...do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again." The Corinthians are, uh, were folks that were, uh, had a sex-crazed culture. Um, They were the Jerry Springer church. Uh, They were the naked and unafraid community. Uh, These folks, and they come to know Jesus Christ, and then there's this radical pendulum swing where they were licentious living, and then they swing over to legalism. And what they do is they say, well, even as a husband and wife, we shouldn't have sexual relationships. And the apostle Paul says, whoa, 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 time out. You're crazy! No, 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 no. You you need to have intimacy in the relationship. A good marriage that is has oneness has uh, sexual intimacy within the relationship. When the uh, when when the apostle Paul talks about that oneness, it's leaving and cleaving. It's becoming one together. It's consummating the marriage. It's intimacy. And so, but the Bible says that there are some some times when you need to refrain. And there's a couple of exceptions. The exceptions is by agreement. Notice what it says in the text. It's a an agreement. Maybe there's a medical condition. Maybe there's an emotional trauma that needs to be worked out and things are going to just get backed up and go really slow in the intimacy department. And anybody in that trauma who's been... Uh, affected or been the victim of any kind of uh, uh, abuse is going to have to just take lots of time, and the husband's going to have to give lots of grace, or the wife is going to have to give lots of grace, but it's by agreement, and you're going to need to get help. But the exceptions are, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, it says, and then for a reason, for the reasons they may devote themselves to prayer. That means to spiritual conditioning and strengthening And there's a natural assumption that there is going to be a a regular rhythm of intimacy in your relationship. And the Apostle Paul says, do not deprive one another. And the question comes as to why. Well, look what it says in in the rest of the verse. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 finishes with the why and says, why? It's to safeguard the relationship so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Um. is you have to realize that uh, you are a gift to your spouse. You husbands that have uh, a rubber neck and you're always looking out at all the other prettier girls, you need to realize that your wife is your standard of beauty. Um, Ladies, you need to hear me in this. You need to understand, 85% of all the affairs start at work. Right now, it's staggering. 70% of business professionals say that they have or they currently have, or they have had a work spouse. The reality is, is this one need, the uh, intimacy, the oneness physically is a God-given need and design that you together can only meet. You can take your laundry to the dry cleaners. You can take your kids to the child care worker. You, you can outsource tons of things, but you can't outsource this need. This is a need that you are designed to meet and to do. And then the last one is to pursue oneness spiritually. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.31 this, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I wanna tell you that it takes time to grow spiritually together in oneness. Fifteen years was a revolutionary time frame for Leslie and I, but we grew more together in resolving conflict on that 15th year than ever before in the previous years. We grew more together spiritually in that, first, that 15th year spiritually than we ever have grown previously. And so what did we do? We started praying together a lot more we started realizing, you know what? We need to work on our marriage a lot harder. We need to focus on getting uh, devotional time together, reading in God's word, and praying together. And we both want to continue to be a part of ministry together and finding those together moments. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Go to church together, be in a neighborhood group together, get in God's word together. Uh, do prayer together. And be encouraged to know this, it is a journey and it takes time. So don't beat yourself up, but know that it is a journey. And last but not least, I want to challenge you as a couple to start a weekly date night routine. Um, We've got some date night ideas for you. I want to encourage you to do that. You can... uh, just start cheap right now in, in this time frame. You could just do a date night in your backyard, but start it every week, if you would, and just start a routine to saying, we're gonna have time together. And in, to close out, I just say this, is that to start the most re- important relationship in your life is that relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you've heard the presentation on the gospel marriage and you've said, man, that would be great. But I don't even know God. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is all loving. He has been sinned against more than anybody else, and He offers love and forgiveness. And he offers reconciliation. You can have peace with God through the person of Jesus Christ. I wanna invite you to start that relationship here right now. Would you pray with me? For those of you that say, I wanna start a new relationship with Jesus Christ so that I can be a bet, the best single or I can be a great um, uh, spouse to my, 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 in my marriage, I wanna do that today. So let me, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for those right now that would say I'm ready to start that relationship with you simply by praying a prayer simply like this. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge my sin. I know that I sin and struggle so much in so many areas. I believe in you to forgive me of my sin, and I confess you today as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, we want to help you get going. You can just sit there, and you can text to us and let us know that you prayed to receive Christ by texting the word YES 602 633 4192. So, thank you so much. Uh, and we're going to continue to worship together in just a minute. And I want to say thank you to you, all of you who have been giving faithfully, financially. You are fueling the ministry. We had more than 20 plus households that are continuing that have given online and reoccurring. And so, we want to thank you for that. For those of you that have not yet started to give, give online and better yet do it reoccurring so that we can plan intelligently to fund and fuel all the ministries that we're continuing to do. We're launching four different online services on Mother's Day, and we're going to continue those. So be sure to check in and invite your friends to those so that they can be a part of the life-changing relationship that Jesus Christ offers through the church. So to Christ be the glory in the North Valley, this is Pastor Ryan. Let's continue to worship together. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.